This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview from the Irish Times. I'm Dennis Staunton. Today we'll hear from Croatia, one of the front lines in Europe's response to the migrant crisis. We begin in Greece, where Alexis Tsipras and his left-wing Syriza party have returned to power after the country's second election this year. Syriza lost only a handful of seats, despite a split in the party that saw the far left, which opposed Mr Tsipras's compromise with EU lenders, set up their own party. Mr Tsipras has decided to form a new government with the same allies he chose last time, the right-wing Eurosceptic independent Greeks. So what can we expect from the new Greek government? And what chance does Mr Tsipras now have of securing debt relief from his EU partners? To discuss this, I'm joined from Athens by our correspondent, Damien Makanola, and here in Dublin by the Irish Times foreign policy editor, Patrick Smith. Damien, when Alexis Tsipras called this snap election in late August, there was a sense that uh, he was on the back foot and that we were braced, or he was braced, for uh, pretty serious losses uh, on uh, the part of his Syriza party. That was exactly it. Uh, when, when Alexis Tsipras called this election in August... He'd been through a very rough uh, patch with his party. Uh, up to you know, 25, 30 percent of his MPs were were voting against his government and had voted against his government in a series of uh, parliamentary votes on 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 leading to the new t- third bailout for the country. And uh, there was a, there was very much a sense that uh, Cyprus was, uh, that Syriza was on the way out. Uh, people were predicting doom and gloom. They were predicting a meltdown. They were. They, were, uh, uh, they believed that the the, the breakaway group uh, would be far more far more successful than they actually were on the day. Uh, but uh, he managed to to, com- to to compound all those uh, predictions and and kind of return almost uh, almost undented, but an unprecedented uh, 145 uh, seats. I mean, I think the most of the polls had the most generous polls before the election had maybe. Uh, predicted 130 or 135 seats, but uh, on the day he he came back with 145, which, as you pointed out, uh, it was um, it's four less than than what he had in in, in January. So a, a, a remarkable performance by by Alexis Tsipras for sure. Uh, and Damien, is this do we think uh, a, a victory for Alexis Tsipras, or was it a failure on the part of his rivals, both his rivals to his left, his former comrades, and also the uh, parties of the right? Well, I think uh, overall, uh, it, 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 it is a, a way a tempered uh, victory. You know, um, the turnout was only 55%. This is a record low figure uh, for Greece, where, you know, voting five or six years ago, uh, participation was up at around uh, over 70% or even higher. So uh, it, 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 it hasn't been the victory that, uh, that he would have liked. But as you, you are right, it's, it, it, many had said that this was new democracies or PASOKs, uh, PASOKs are the other parties in Parliament, the, the, the pro-European part, the more outwardly pro-European parties, that was their election to win. But they, they, they failed uh, to convince their electorate. Uh, new democracy held its ground. It, it didn't really go down, but it didn't go, it didn't go up either. It's under a new leader. People had uh, believed earlier on that, that he had the potential maybe to, to take on Mr. Cyprus, but his campaign, uh, the campaign of uh, 
Evangelos Mimarakis, the, the interim New Democracy leader, kind of faltered at the at the last hurdle. Um, so there wasn't really much of a challenge, or there wasn't really much of an alternative. That's that's what many voters said. They didn't see any better alternative uh, to Mr. Tsipras, who they uh, recognised had his uh, limitations and 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 had kind of gone down a path that he promised he never would do. But they didn't see any any credible alternative. But yeah, on the left, uh, the breakaway Popular Unity Party, which was set up by 25 uh, former series MPs. Um, they failed pretty miserably. They, they, they failed to cross the 3% threshold into Parliament. Uh, polls had s- suggested that they'd get 4 or 5% at least, so that was really a surprise on the night that they didn't get, that they didn't get through. And I think it was really... Uh, they will say that they didn't have a lot of time to prepare their campaign and they, they, weren't as fu- they, weren't, they didn't have funding, but I think that's... Uh, they know themselves that uh, this party grew out of a platform within Syriza, an organised platform within Syriza. So, uh, you know, it had certain uh, organisational structures there. It had the people, but I think uh, at the end of the day, they didn't really work out what their policies were. They were reluctant at times to spell out uh, what they meant by leaving the eurozone, uh, or how the transition to a drachma would uh, would materialise. And I think you know voters weren't prepared to um, to follow that uh, kind of exp- um, policy being made on the hoof. So they went with Mr Tsipras then in the end. And on the other extreme, the Golden Dawn, the neo-Nazi movement, uh, they uh, more or less uh, returned with kind of the same as they had left with. Yeah, I mean, all parties bar two lost voters. Golden Dawn also lost voters, but it's its reduction in, 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 in voters, actual numbers of people voting for it, was the smallest. It went down by, by something like 2%, whereas uh, one of the centrist party, a newly formed Patami party, lost 40% of its voters. So Golden Dawn, while it's the actual numbers of, of people voting, voting for it has gone down, its percentage has gone up with the, with the high abstention rate. They were third party in the outgoing parliament, and they're still third party now. So it is a worrying development, but uh, compared to, you know, they've really... Uh, they've held their ground. Uh, the what is um, perhaps worrying is that just days before the election, the leader of the party admitted on a radio interview that he, that they were politically responsible for the murder of a, 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 of a rapper, a musician, two years ago. This this murder sparked a, a crackdown on the party, and they're they're facing uh, they're in the courts over that now. But uh, despite that admission of political responsibility. He denied that there was any criminal responsibility. But despite that, or because of that, the party managed to 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 hold its ground. Uh, now, Mr. Cyprus has decided to uh, go back into government with the right-wing party, the independent Greeks. This has annoyed some of his European partners who thought he should have gone for one of the centrist or, as you say, overtly pro-European parties. Why did he go for the independent Greeks again? Um, they, they, I, I think there's a political, there's a, there's a political rationale there, and, and and this existed back in January too, in that this is a coalition where that allows Mr. Tsipras more or less to do his thing in the areas of policy that uh, in the policy areas that Syriza uh, holds dear, uh, and it also allows the independent Greeks, it gives them, a, it allows them to participate in government, and it also gives their their leader and 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 a number of their MPs. 
uh, ministries in areas that interest them. So, for example, the, 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 the leader of the independent Greeks, Panos Kamenos, was defence minister in the previous government, and I would expect that he'll be defence minister in this one too. So the independent Greeks, the nationalist uh, element in the coalition, gets the army and the police and, and, and uh, is allowed to deal with those kind of issues, whereas uh, Syriza... Uh, can can you know um, pass a citizenship bill giving giving citizenship to second generation migrants uh, even though their coalition partner is opposed to it. And I think Syriza's thinking is that if they went into coalition with uh, Pasok or Potami, they'd be challenged far more on 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 many of its uh, policy choices. So I think it's kind of a marriage of convenience, really. This Syriza uh, independent Greeks coalition, where each can do more or less what they want without having to worry about the other. Uh, Paddy Smith, uh, Alexis Cyprus, has made clear that uh, he feels he has a, a restored mandate now to go back to Brussels and uh, and ask for uh, some kind of debt relief or debt forgiveness uh, from the EU lenders. What kind of response is he likely to get? Well, I think, uh, broadly speaking, I, you're right to say that the, the Europe would probably have preferred uh, PASOK to be in, in, in government. Uh, moderating the the um, uh, instincts of of uh, Syriza, uh, but I think broadly speaking, the 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 mood music in in out of Brussels is that it it may be possible to do some debt forgiveness now if um, he can show that the pro program of of uh, austerity uh, of cuts in in pensions of of changes in in various programs that he has promised are actually underway i th i think the the next payment of the um, bailout money is 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 coming in in about a month and in in the course of that time um Tsipras will be expected to to demonstrate that he's well and truly on course if he, if he is i i my own feeling is that uh, the mood music is that, that he will be given some further debt relief. Uh, now, I, a few months ago, when Syriza uh, came to power, we seemed to be uh, witnessing a kind of a wave of, uh, of left-wing movements across Europe uh, achieving great poll success. And so you not only had Syriza in Greece, but you also had Podemos in Spain, who uh, appeared also on the, the verge of some major breakthrough. Since then, uh, Podemos have retreated somewhat, and, uh, and Syriza were expected to be beaten back, as we've heard just now. The fact that they actually survived, what does that mean for other left-wing movements across Europe? Well, I think one of the interesting um, indirect effects of, of the, the Syriza support was, was the election of, of Jeremy Corbyn in, in the British Labour Party. It seems that uh, this idea of, of a new force, anti-establishment, uh, not grown out of the, the, the political system, uh, has an appeal much further afield than, than uh, uh, just uh, Greece and, and Spain, perhaps. And in, indeed, the uh, Greeks um, have been willing in, in their uh, rallies, for example, to talk about the effect uh, in Ireland that they hope that their support will bring support to, to Sinn Féin in the course of, of uh, the elections that are due here. But nonetheless, uh, obviously, the new uh, Alexis Tsipras government is rather less pure than the one that came to power earlier this, this year, given that he has now compromised really quite serious and significant compromises with exactly what he said he wouldn't. And is that also a straw in the wind for 
what awaits any of these left-wing movements if they ever do achieve power? Yes, I, I think it, it's interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, for example, within the the, the GUE group in the European Parliament, um, what the effect of, of Syriza's reverse course will be long term, because there's certainly elements of that. Um, they're not they're not there anymore, but the Socialist Party MEPs uh, would be deeply unhappy with uh, the course taken by uh, Syriza. And uh, there will be other elements on the, on the left who see now uh, Syriza as having uh, sold out. Um, I, I think that the, what you're seeing is probably not, um, is not going to unduly worry much of, of, of the left. In, um, uh, I, I saw um, uh, Matteo Renzi uh, making a statement uh, uh, yesterday, which was pretty critical of, of uh, Syriza. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think he doesn't he doesn't face a similar uh, threat in, in Italy at all. Um, and well, he does face uh, the five star movement of Beppe Grillo, which is neither right nor left, but something sui generis in a way, but uh, but still it is a, yeah. an insurgent anti-systemic movement. Yes, um, they're there still, they, they, they won't go away. Um, for, for if you like, the left establishment, um, Syriza's uh, volt fast is probably reassuring in the sense that they uh, will, will try and say, well, look, you know, he, he had to be realistic in the end. And, and isn't that a good thing? Uh, Damien, if I can go back to you, uh, what's the perception now in Greece of Alexis Tsipras? Is he now regarded as another conventional politician? No, that's the, that, that's the, the, the paradox, really. I mean, people, he has managed to sell this image uh, of himself that uh, he fought very hard in the, in the eight months or seven months that he was in power, that he tried his best to get a better deal from Greece, and that despite all his best efforts, uh, he, he was ultimately, he faced um, blackmail and ultimatum and had to force, uh, had to sign a, a third memorandum. And he's, if you speak to a series of voters, there are those who who do see it that way and have, have uh, accept his, his line on it. Uh, there are those who are a little bit more sceptical, but as I said earlier on in the interview, they just don't feel that there's an al- another alternative there. Uh, or if they do look at the, at the alternative, the, 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 that alternative is new democracy or PASOK, and they say, well, these are the two parties that led us uh, into this uh, situation after 40 years of rule. So in a way, it's uh, a second, they're giving Mr. Cyprus a second chance. Whether it's the last chance they'll give him, uh, I don't know, but uh, he certainly proved himself to be uh, very adept at, uh, at, at uh, uh, changing, changing, changing course, uh, but uh, also bringing substantial portions of his voters with him. So uh, he, he, may able to, he may be able to do it again uh, on, on another occasion. Damien McAnally in Athens and Patrick Smith here in Dublin, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code IRISHTIMES to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. You're listening to Worldview from the Irish Times with me, Dennis Staunton. EU leaders are meeting in Brussels this week in an effort to agree a common, coordinated approach to the influx of hundreds of thousands of migrants into Europe, including many who are fleeing conflicts in the Middle East. Croatia has become the latest flashpoint in the crisis, with tens of thousands of migrants passing through the country in recent days on the way from Serbia to Hungary.
I'm joined now from Vukovar in Croatia by our correspondent Daniel McLaughlin and Patrick Smith is still with me here in studio. Dan McLaughlin, can you explain to us just why Croatia has become a flashpoint in recent days? The migrants really, you know, over the months as the numbers have built up, they're taking the path of least resistance towards Western Europe. Most of them want to get to Germany ultimately. Some want to get to the Netherlands, Sweden. They're the main countries that we hear as, as desired destinations for, for the migrants and refugees. So Hungary was the main route, straight through Hung- Serbia, Hungary, uh, straight through to Austria and then on, until uh, from about uh, 10 days ago now, 9, 10 days ago, Hungary completed a, a fence along its southern border with with Serbia, covering the full 175 kilometers. They've got police down there, they've got soldiers down there patrolling the fence, and effectively it's now blocked. Um, A few people are still getting through, they're going up and over or, or under the fence, but the vast majority of people are finding it impossible to get through into Hungary now. So they've taken a westward turn. Um... So they're now moving up to sort of uh, around Belgrade area, then they're turning west, and they're going through Croatia. Um, and the whole infrastructure, the sort of transport infrastructure that grows up and, and uh, that has grown up around the migration route and adapts to the migration route when necessary, is also funneling them through very efficiently that way. I was down in Belgrade at the weekend, and all the buses that were running north to the Hungarian border are now turning west, and they're all going directly to uh, the Croatian border. Also, buses direct from the Macedonia-Serbian border are running directly to that Croatian border as well. Um, so that Croatian border has been open. Something more than 30,000 people have crossed that border in the last six or seven days. Um, and Croatia is doing its best to deal with it um, under considerable and growing pressure. Now, perhaps you could explain exactly what Hungary or what Croatia is doing to deal with it, how they're dealing with it. It seems that they're effectively helping uh, these migrants to use Croatia as a transit route and they're picking them up at one side and dropping them off at the other end. Yep, that's that's exactly what they're doing with a bit of um, sort of delaying in, in the meantime to try and slow down the flow. Basically slow down the flow, I think... Um, to help Austria out, Austria's under great pressure because they've had huge numbers flowing through and then on to Germany. Germany obviously has bigger resources than Austria, so it's perhaps coping a bit better. But all that Croatia's doing really does seem to be just passing them on um, and trying to, as I say, add a bit of a, a delaying factor to allow Austria to cope a little bit better. So a, a system that was instituted sort of Sunday night, Monday morning in, in Croatia here, very close to where I am now, Vukovar, just a few miles to the south on the, on the Serbia-Croatia border, um, a system was put in place whereby, whereas over the weekend we saw huge numbers arriving at a train station called Tovarnik, which is on the Croatian-Serbian border. We saw scuffles there, we saw kinds of struggles to get on the trains which were then moving forward from from Tavarnik on the border through Croatia to Hungary. Um, Croatia took it in hand, and they're now transferring people by bus from that border to uh, a sort of transit camp close to me here at uh, a place called Opatovac. Um, The migrants are supposed to spend a a few hours there, at most one, one, one night, before then being, and they're given some food, they're given water, they're given any medical treatment they need. There's a very sort of perfunctory registration scheme put in place as well. And then they're taken back to Tavarnik, 
um, where they're put on buses and trains to Hungary. Hungary, despite all its protestations and the fence that it built and insisting that it's kind of defending Europe, defending Christendom and everything else from this wave of, of mostly Muslim migrants, Hungary is then putting them on, on buses and trains and taking them direct from the Croatian border to Austria. So basically, they're just, they're just passing the problem on um, to Austria, and Austria then keeps them in transit camps for a wee while and then passes them on to Germany. Um, I mean, the latest from the Apatovac camp, though, this morning, where I was just a couple of hours ago, the system is already struggling because, um, you know, the migrants have traveled all the way from places like Syria, Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Eritrea, Somalia, they wonder why they're being pushed into another camp when they really don't want to be there. They would rather be even walking on their way further west. They're suspicious of, of, of the Croatian authorities and, and the whole camp idea. Once they're in there, they don't know when they're going to be let out. And they just feel like, um, again, in the absence of clear information, they just worry that they're going to be somehow penned up in there for a very long time. Uh, and, and some of them are saying we're not going to stay. There were scuffles this morning between migrants, refugees in the camp and riot police. And some of them just took it upon themselves to walk out and to try and sort of figure out their own way west towards the Hungary border. So that's what Croatia is trying to do. But already, you know, even within sort of 20, 24, 36 hours, it's already under, under massive pressure. Uh, you are speaking to us from Vukovar, a city uh, in Croatia with its own relatively recent history of uh, population displacement. Could you tell us something about that? That's right. It's a very, very interesting um, and difficult place still in many ways. It's, I mean, I'm looking out now at the, at the Danube River. Um, on the other side, maybe about only about 200, 300 metres away from where I am now, is Serbia. Um, and I'm obviously in Croatia, I'm on, on, in Vukovar on the Croatian side of the border, the other side of the river is Serbia. And when, the Croatia, when, when Croatia uh, seceded from Yugoslavia back in 1991, when it was already collapsing, Slovenia had already left, um, this is where the worst fighting, um, the, 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 the most hideous atrocities of the Serbian-Croatian war took place. So in 1991, for about three months, uh, Serbian forces, this is, well, I mean, the Yugoslav army, Yugoslav army forces, which were commanded by Serbs at the time, and Serb irregulars, who had a horrific reputation for atrocities, basically just rained shellfire and all kinds of misery down on Vukovar for about three months. Um, a much smaller force of, of, of local Croatian fighters, uh, vastly outnumbered and outgunned by the Serbs, held out here for about three months until finally they, uh, they were overrun by the, by the Serbian forces, at which point people who sought shelter in, particularly in the hospital here, they thought they would be safe, but they weren't. They were taken to a nearby uh, pig farm called um, Ovchara, which is actually very close to this um, Opatovac camp where the refugees are now being clo uh, kept. Um, and, and the massacre took place there. Um, so this is still a city with um, very deep scars. I mean, a lot of the buildings are still damaged. There are huge uh, shell holes gouged out of some of the big buildings around here. There was a, a water tower, a big red brick water tower, which kind of became a symbol for Eastern Croatia and certainly of Vukovar, which, which still kind of glowers over the city, really. Um, it's still full of shell holes and a huge Croatian flag flies from the top of it. There's still quite a big Serbian community here, actually, as well, and relations are still tense. Um, there are still regular rows which kind of 
spiral out to the national scale and even international scale between Serbia and Croatia over sort of language laws here. So it's an area that still uh, the, the memories of war are very fresh. Um, and I suppose you could say in a positive way, that has affected the way that local people have responded to the refugee crisis as it, as it reroutes and passes through this area. Lots of local volunteers are going out to help. They're doing their best to welcome people. They're taking food and water. And, and they just in general have, um, I think you can say, a, a sort of patience and an understanding for what the people here are fleeing from, particularly people from places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, which are, have suffered terrible conflicts in recent years. Um, and they are perhaps, you could say, more more open and understanding towards them than maybe someone or a nation that doesn't have such recent uh, memory of of, um, of conflict, like, for example, Hungary just next door. Paddy Smith, uh, we've seen examples of the kind of individual action by citizens that uh, Dan has been describing there in Croatia. We've seen it in Germany, we've seen it in Austria, we've seen it in many places where citizens have been responding uh, in uh, with this kind of hospitality. But if you look at the response from member states of the European Union, you've got this patchwork of individual uh, responses, some of which seem to ignore uh, European rules or agreements and others which uh, try to adopt a different approach. When the European leaders meet tomorrow, what prospect do they have of making some, bringing some kind of order to this response? Well, it's very difficult. As you say, it's a, it's a complete uh, patchwork. There was a temptation a few weeks ago to, to try and, and uh, characterise this as old Europe versus new Europe and say, to say that the, the new European states, which were much less ethnically mixed, um, the, 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 the Hungarys, the Slovakias and Czech Republic and, and, and these countries, that they were much less like uh, likely to be welcoming uh, than the, the the countries like France and and Germany and uh, where where there is a much longer tradition of mixing um, communities and an influx of of of, uh, of refugees and immigrants and uh, and 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 actually what's happened is is that it's much more complicated than that as as Dan was saying that you see in Croatia the the best of 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 uh, of of European re response, uh, like in Germany, like like in in uh, Sweden, the real problem is that the leaders of the European Union, uh, although they have the power in European law to impose a majority decision, mandatory quotas on um, uh, on each of the countries, they feel. Uh, very uh, nervous about doing so because they they feel that if they try and do so, uh, it's quite possible that that, uh, that some of the um, countries like Hungary will simply break the rules and will will disregard the quotas. So the inevitable uh, result is almost certainly a a, a system of um, non-mandatory uh, voluntary quotas applying to different countries, and you you will see some countries simply refusing to have anything to do with it. And Britain, Britain, for example, included, which has uh, boasted that it's not part of Schengen and doesn't want any of the, any of this stuff. And um, it has to be said that uh, this uh, this is the country which is 
going to be looking to the European Union partners shortly to renegotiate parts of their treaty, and and it's difficult to imagine uh, that they're going to be that their partners are going to be sympathetic, given the lack of solidarity from 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 Britain. When the German Chancellor Angela Merkel announced a few weeks ago that Germany would accept the migrants that came its way, uh, she was very widely praised for showing leadership, for uh, for showing courage, and for and and, and generosity. Uh, but since then, uh, there have been some questions about the wisdom of her move that seemed in a way to not only suspend the Schengen Agreement, but also to tear up the Dublin Convention uh, on how you receive asylum seekers in Europe, which, you know, whatever you think of it, is nonetheless kind of common policy. Do you think that it may be the case that in hindsight that uh, she acted with some haste and that in fact by uh, tearing up the rule book herself that she made it maybe more difficult to find a common agreement that will stick? Well, firstly, the tearing up the rule book, um, the, the rule book provides for its, its own suspension. So in that sense, she's not flouting the, the law. And you can see Germany rowing back to some extent with more strong statements from, from the Germans about no uh, access for, for economic migrants, for example, and making a, a sharp distinction uh, between them and, and talking about repatriating people who, who are there simply uh, looking for, for um, uh, e e a better economic uh, life. I think there's also, uh, in the last few weeks, people have begun to look at, at perhaps the, some of the underlying motives of the German governments, and that is the, the demographics of, of German society. We're actually uh, probably unlike or to a greater extent than a lot of European countries. Germany will be suffering from labour shortages in, in the years ahead. And so an influx of skilled, um, a lot of these are, are professional uh, uh, Syrians, uh, doctors, architects, engineers and the like uh, are going to be filling in um, uh, jobs that the, the German economy will, will need and, and therefore there's a slight cynicism about the ger German uh, motives. I think, I think that's wrong myself. I think, I think that you've got to say that, that primarily this is, this is a humanitarian uh, gesture. I, sorry, go on. No, one of the other things I, I was going to just mention is is it's it's not just Germany, um, Sweden, and there's very interesting things going happening in in Sweden. Sweden last year took in eighty thousand uh, refugees. Now, if you if you take pro pro rata uh, for Ireland, that would be the equivalent of us admitting thirty thousand uh, refugees, and we're contemplating taking in uh, twelve hundred. So the Swedes have already made a much much greater effort. Uh, and they are still open to the idea of of taking more in, and, and um, but there is an interesting phenomenon, and it's reflected also in Germany, and that is the growth of the hard right, anti-immigrant right. And in Germany, the the Sweden Democrats are polling very high, and and they are explicitly anti-immigrant and very strongly opposed to it. So you 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 what you're seeing uh, in in both countries is uh, perhaps a sharpening of the. Uh, argument about about migrants and a, and a, a greater confidence among those uh, and dangerously so perhaps among those who oppose them. Uh, Dan McLaughlin, can I finally return to you and ask you about Hungary, the country uh, where you live, and uh, and Hungary has to some extent uh, been uh, uh, been set up as the uh, as the demon of the peace uh, in the in the story as it's been told in Europe over the last few months. How do people, uh, Hungarians in general, 
perceive this crisis and how do they perceive the way in which they are being perceived throughout the rest of Europe? Well, Hungary is quite deeply divided on this itself. Um, Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister, does have a lot of support um, and the way he has uh, taken control of lots of the, the levers of power in recent years since he, uh, in, in the sort of last five, six, seven years, uh, particularly when you look at things like the media, it's very hard to find on main, mainstream national media in Hungary views that don't tally very, very closely with Orban's views. So um, when we, when Hungarians turn on the TV at night, they see mostly pictures of, um, for example, the clashes at the Hungarian border with uh, between migrants and, and riot police, I think it was last Wednesday, um, with the onus being very much on uh, the claim from Hungary that it was v- radical elements and even um, terrorist elements in the migrant, uh, in the body of migrants there that caused this violence to occur. So the, the, the migrants are very much portrayed, not just on television, but in everything that Orban and his allies say, as a threat, not only a threat to Hungary's security and its identity and its values, the way um, Orban describes them, but those of Europe. I mean, in the last few days, we've seen a repeated message from Orban and his foreign minister and other top officials that Hungary, um, you know, harking back to even... Um, the times when Hungary found itself on on the front line of the uh, of, uh, of of Christian states when the Ottomans were moving into Europe, we're talking about the 1400s, the 1500s here. Um, talking about that time as when Hungary defended Europe and Christian values, and that it's having to do the same again. So Orbán's rhetoric isn't isn't really getting any softer on this at all. He is insisting that uh, that Hungary has a role to play in defending the continent and its values and that the rest of Europe simply doesn't understand what a grave threat it's facing. At the same time, you mentioned the the volunteer effort there. And there is a very, very big and very strong volunteer effort in Hungary too. There are two or three groups that have have gained huge support using social media, avoiding the mainstream media to get their message out because they know that they won't be heard on there. So using social media to gather tens of thousands of, of supporters together and hundreds of active volunteers around the country to get out and provide help to the migrants directly on the ground, creating little camps and little help points where they can get the help and um, and get the, the the concern for them and the and the information that they need that they're not being provided by Hungary, which is determined to portray this this wave of migration as fundamentally a security threat, not a humanitarian issue, but a but a security threat. But when it comes to the Hungarian people in general. Um, Orban's policy on this, like his policy on most things since he's been in power, is extremely divisive and it is simply uh, driving, driving a wedge more deeply in Hungarian society between his own supporters and his opponents. Daniel McLaughlin in Vukovar and Patrick Smith here in Dublin. Thank you. And that's all from this edition of Worldview. You can find more on all our stories at irishtimes.com. But from producer Sinead O'Shea, sound engineer Rob O'Sullivan, and from me, Dennis Staunton, goodbye. <laughs>